Welcome everyone to episode 91, 3D Cell Library. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Daylon James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Daylon? I'm the same. I'm the same as ever. I'm, I don't know if I'm in a rut or what, but just everything's just the same. I'm bored with myself. I hate me. How are you? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm busy, busy, busy this week. I've been doing a lot of things, which is good, but also a little stressful. So I'm looking forward to a bit of downtime to catch up on some personal improvement projects. Get out of here, but you're perfect. What are we going to do? How can we build on this perfection? Oh, always, always building, always, always trying to do better, right? Always moving forward. That's right. Never be fine with the status quo, at least personally. I got to do self-improvement, self-improve, self-improve. Maybe that's what I need. Maybe I should stop hating me and start improving me. This sounds like a good plan. All right. I'm going to get to it. But first, but first, (laughs) we got things to do, don't we? We do. We have a whole podcast to get to. So let us get down to business. Make sure you check us out at thestemcellpodcast.com, where you will find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, you can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes can automatically download to your phone. And also, you know, you can uh, sign up for the Stem Cell Podcast newsletter. So you just go to stemcellpodcast.com and look for the newsletter and subscribe to that. It's got the links to all of the show stories and all that kind of stuff. And it comes to your email box. That would be good. Why don't you do that if you haven't done it? Moving forward, though, we have a great show today, and we're going to discuss the latest science and stem cell news, as we always do. And we are interviewing doctors, multiple, Rick Horowitz and Graham Johnson, about their recently published work that used induced pluripotent stem cells and deep learning algorithms to create a 3D cell library that's called the Allen Cell Explorer. But first, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? I can't wait to get into this interview. Deep learning. Wow. Yeah. Cell exploration. Man, it's going to be so fun. But as always, before the roundup and before that interview, we want to remind our listeners of Connexon's ESC and IPSC News, a free weekly newsletter summarizing all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in pluripotent stem cell research delivered right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with ESC and IPSC news. Subscribe for free at ESCellnews.com. All right, Kiki, why don't you get started with today's or this week's or this double week worth of news. That's right. And so we spoke in the last episode about what was coming up, the March for Science. It happened on Earth Day, April 22nd, people around the world, more than 600 cities, scientists and science advocates participated, marched, came up with really funny signs to hold. There were demonstrations and people talking about science and also there were you know, bands playing and scientists dancing poorly. <laughs> to the music. Oh, <laughs> no. Poor science. There are many scientists who can dance very well to the music of science. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, there, it was very successful. There were people around the world, hundreds of thousands of people wow. marching for science. And, you know, we've spoken before the sentiment that has overwhelmed people is that science is under attack, especially here in the United States. And people, scientists really are feeling like we can't float above it all and just kind of still do science and take it all for granted. Scientists are feeling like they really have to start engaging and taking their demands to political leaders and their policymakers. And so on the National Mall, they marched through puddles to Capitol Hill. And, you know, they tried to create a nonpartisan event. So, you know, political yet not Democrat or Republican, not conservative or progressive, but nonpartisan and really promoting science on both sides or all sides of the political spectrum. And so it's a little inevitable, though it was inspired by President Trump's election. Yes, indeed. And marchers were pushing back, you could see from the signs, against an administration that has denied climate change, questioned the benefits of vaccines, and also proposed cutting funding for scientific research. However, Congress this week is voting on the omnibus bills that potentially will maintain a lot of funding for science, if not increasing it. So Congress is actually doing us a solid for science in a time of budgetary cuts and cutbacks. But anyway, for all of the talk of the march's political nature, it was overall an appreciation of science. And people from all walks of life turned out. And the question is now, what is next? We marched. The following weekend, there was even a climate change march, even more political and focused on a single issue. But what is going to happen now? And so is this march, the March for Science, going to make a difference? Organizers are trying to figure out how they can capitalize on what has happened already. They held meetings on Sunday and have been set for a week of action to keep the ball rolling. And there's general advice that is being given to everyone who is pro-science. Call your representatives. Don't forget to get involved on the local level. If you think science funding is important, if you think science in politics and policy is important, Tell your representatives, tell people who are working in your local government, and maybe, just maybe, even run for office yourself. Whoa, you run for office. I'm not doing that. (laughs) It's not for everyone, right? (laughs) I don't know about you. I'll be honest. I didn't go to the march. I feel a little guilty now because I'm a scientist and I care about science. But I really honestly thought, I'm impressed there was such a good turnout. I really pictured a bunch of scientists who are famous for uh, not being able to communicate well with the layperson, just having like abstracts on their posters, like objectives of this <laughs> march, and then some convoluted language about the mechanism of action and all this stuff. So I'm glad the scientists could dumb it down a bit and express themselves and speak out for science. I think it's very important, and we'll see where it goes. We will see if people keep speaking out and making it an important social issue. Another important social issue is vaccination. And one vaccine in particular has been a bit controversial, the HPV vaccine. HPV is responsible for actually lots of cancers, the human papilloma virus. We know that it's transmitted sexually, 
and sometimes it just, it, it doesn't do much of anything. There's some strains that don't do anything at all. Others that cause warts, genital warts, and uh, yet others that actually lead to cancer. In April, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported for 2013 to 2014 that among adults ages 18 to 59, a quarter of men and a fifth of women had genital infections with HPV types that put them at risk of developing cancer. So for those who are sexually active, more than 90% of men and 80% of women can expect to become infected with at least one type of HPV during their lives. And about half of those infections are going to be a high-risk HPV type. And so, like I've mentioned, there are multiple types of HPV, some low-risk and others much higher risk. HPV types 16 and 18 can be traced to 70% of cervical cancers. Type 16 also causes cancers of the anus, vagina, penis, and oropharynx, which is the part of the throat at the back of the mouth. And so there is a vaccine for these high-risk types of HPV, and kids are not really getting it. This vaccine has been promoted. They're trying to get a national coverage goal of 80% for 13 to 15-year-olds, and they're really not hitting it. In 2015, among U.S. adolescents ages 13 to 17, six out of 10 girls and five out of 10 boys had gotten at least one shot in a three-shot series. But only four out of 10 girls and three out of 10 boys had completed the series. And so there's a question as to why adolescents are not finishing their vaccination schedule. And researchers think that it has to do with their parents. Researchers say they don't know about the vaccine in the first place. Secondarily, they have fears about the safety. Or they say, my child's not going to be at risk for HPV infections. And then there's another group altogether that think that by giving them the vaccine, you're saying it's okay to have sex because HPV is sexually transmitted. However, research doesn't back this up. Kids, females who are given the vaccine are not having sex more often. That's not working that way. And so there is a whole new, they're trying to work things out. They've got a new vaccination schedule. So instead of three shots, there's now going to be two shots. And instead of an odd schedule, the second shot have to be only six to 12 months after the first. So it might be a lot easier to accommodate in yearly well-child visits as adolescents reach the age for this vaccine. So one of the researchers from the CDC, Paskett, says he's really concerned, you know, how we're going to get this vaccine implemented more regularly. And he says it's not to the extent we could have if we, from the get-go, people realized this was a cancer vaccine. You know, they're thinking it's a vaccine for a sexually transmitted disease instead. And he says if there was a vaccine for breast cancer, moms would be lining up around the corner with their daughters. So if maybe the marketing of this vaccine were to be changed up a little bit as a cancer vaccine, which is really what it's all about, reduce the risk of cervical cancer, of these other cancers caused by the HPV. You know, if we worked it out that way, maybe kids would be getting it and be more protected. Yeah, come on. You got to get vaccines for like diarrhea. You know, there's like things that are never a threat in the developed world. They're lining up to shoot your kid full of vaccines for that stuff. But there, there's all this resistance. Obviously, I think you can 
go through all the potential reasons, but it's obvious to me that it's stigmatized because it's an STD. So we got to grow up, people. Your kids, I'm afraid they are going to have sex at some point in their lives. Maybe. <laughs> most of them. Probably at some point. And, you know, maybe not while they're adolescent still. And, hey, that's what every parent would love to see, right? Wait until you're an adult, <laughs> right? But, you know, if you have the chance to protect your child yeah. from cancer, maybe, just maybe, this is something to be thought about. Moving on from vaccines to depression, researchers publishing in the April 28th Science have discovered a gene called PCDHAlpha-C2, and, you know, it's a mouthful of a gene, but really it is a gene that codes for kind of like spacers on the surface of neurons that control how neurons grow and how they are spaced appropriately within the brain. And for effective and efficient signaling between neurons, axon tips need to be properly spaced. And what they've discovered is that when this gene is disrupted in mice, the spacing of serotonin signaling circuits is not assembled appropriately, and the mice exhibit behaviors that are similar to or indicate depression. So basically, by disrupting this gene, they disrupt serotonin signaling circuits, and mice are depressed. So now the question is to figure out exactly how this gene really affects the spacing of the serotonergic neurons and their axonal ends, and what mechanism keeps the axons really in line. Because if we could work on the genes that regulate serotonin wiring in the human brain, maybe this could be a direction for future research into solving serotonergic psychiatric disorders. Yeah, well, forget about humans. It's tough to be a mouse. Oh my and, God, you I know, know. Maybe we should figure out a way to make their lives a little better. <laughs> Seriously, these studies too, they're always like, oh, we took a mouse and we, you know, we think we made it depressed. So we put him in a pool of water to see if it would swim for its life. <laughs> the ones that were depressed gave up swimming faster. <laughs> like, oh, poor mice. Oh, no. Seriously, that's how depressed you have to be for it to be depressed. Or not. You have to like want to die. You have much. to. I give up. I'm just going to drown. <laughs> nah. <sighs> Yeah. Well, you know, these mechanistic studies, these kind of, you know, we have to know that these genes are responsible for something similar yes. to what we experience in sure. humans before joke. we really start jumping into the human side of the research. But I should not joke. We just had a guest on talking about anorexia and modeling yeah. and cells. So if, if cells can model anorexia, mice can be depressed. It's for sure. Absolutely. Moving from depression to, oh, a good reason to be depressed, Zika virus. Mm. Yeah. So research out in the April 27th cell. Hey, guess what? If you get infected with Zika virus, it's going to stick around in your lymph nodes and central nervous system for much longer than previously thought. Oh, man. Researcher publishing, Dan Baruch, publishing in Cell from Harvard Medical School, they infected rhesus monkeys with Zika and then monitored the early stages of infection. The virus disappeared from the monkeys' bloodstreams after only 10 days. So yay, it's gone. Nope. The virus was lingering in the cerebrospinal fluid for 42 days, up to 42 days, and up to 72 days in the lymph nodes. Wow. So 
Yeah. Even though antibodies that recognize and disable the Zika virus appeared within days in the bloodstream, they weren't detected in the cerebrospinal fluid during the study. So there's something going on in the cerebrospinal fluid, in the lymph nodes that's allowing Zika to remain in the body and kind of avoid the normal immune system controls. Hmm. This could be something that is related to all of the neurological issues that Zika is thought to cause. And then additionally, the researchers are saying that this adds another layer of complexity in searching for a treatment. So not only will we need to remove the virus from the bloodstream, but also from the places that it hides in the body. And so maybe a preventative strategy is something that would work better. I mean, yes, let's get a treatment, but maybe if we can get a vaccine that stops the infection from setting in in the first place, that's the easiest and best target to go after. For sure. I wonder how it relates to the infectivity, though, like as a vector, when it's cleared from your blood, but it's still in your lymph nodes, like when the mosquitoes bite you and then bite someone else, can they still transmit it from you? Or is it like less risk? Because that, that maybe the silver lining there is that it's cleared relatively quickly. If you quarantine these people until it goes into the hiding places, at least you'll, you know, mitigate the transmission. But I don't know. I didn't really look at the paper. Yeah, it probably depends on the transmission, the method of transmission. You know, if you're talking about a mosquito and right. what's in the bloodstream, then yeah, maybe not an issue. But if you're talking about long-term, you know, does the virus come out of the cerebrospinal right. fluid? Or the lymph nodes. Triggers or the lymph nodes mobilize. back into the bloodstream. Yeah, does it mobilize in some way? Yeah. It's a tough question, but... Another week, another Zika story or three. And this is uh, another piece of the puzzle for sure. If you don't mind, I'm taking over now. You ready? It's your turn. All right. Well, we're talking about Zika lingering. I'll tell you something else that's lingered. And this isn't a theme. Okay. Today, my roundups, it's all about decline and aging because I'm depressed clearly in this episode. <laughs> but what's lingering in this case, it's CIRM. Remember CIRM? Yes. California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, a windfall. When California voters approved $3 billion in funding for stem cell research, this was in 2004, remember, it was, you know, clarion call. Biologists flocked to the state and citizens dreamed of cures for all kinds of diseases, ranging from, you know, neurological, Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injury, heart disease, the whole rigmarole, you know. The pot of money now, I'm afraid, it's dwindling. It was one of the biggest investments in science. But it's running dry, and this is before we've really seen any of the treatments coming into play, which is raising a lot of questions about whether Californians are ready to refeed, pour billions more into a similar fund for stem cell research. So, CIRM, it's now doling out its final $650 million, but the leaders are seeking more money from the private sector to carry projects beyond the term, which is ending in 2020 when the money's going to be run out. Advocates are also talking to voters or trying to, you know, canvas to determine whether if there was a renewed request for funding, if it would stand a chance in these state elections, these propositions that they love to throw out in California. But the, there's a lot of critics that are arguing against this way of funding research. So let's go back in time a little bit. The California voters, they saw a lot of opportunities for stem cells when this vote went in, in 2004, and they passed Prop 71 which included this corporation 
creationist corporation that became CERM. And if you remember, this was in reaction to the Bush decision to restrict federal funding to work using human embryonic stem cell research. Since CERM rolled out the first grants in 2006, it's funded a whopping 750 projects. And there's been a lot of really impressive results from early clinical trials. For example, in March, a trial that was partially funded by CIRM showed that nine out of 10 kids who were born with S-SCID, severe combined immune deficiency, or the bubble boy disease, as it's so-called. This is a lethal condition where you have pretty much no immune system or it doesn't function. And these kids were doing just fine eight years after the initial treatment, as long as eight years, some of the early entrants to the trial, as long as eight years after the treatment, no longer needing injections, to be able to go to school, play outside, or survive like a common cold, which would kill someone with this condition if they were untreated. So this is a big deal, right? Yeah. You know, this is stuff that's really in play, and it's, it's curing these kids. But there's still a lot of detractors. So to milk the remaining $650 million, CIRM has, has partnered with this contract research organization, Quintiles IMS in Durham, North Carolina, to try and bring some of these projects and their results into clinical trial. And this, the hope is that it'll move about 40 novel therapies into trials in 2020. Bob Klein, a property developer who put Prop 21 on the ballot and established CIRM, is hoping that Californians will rise in support of science now that the Trump administration has proposed these drastic cuts to the NIH budget. So there's kind of renewed enthusiasm for getting a Prop 71 kind of the sequel going on. But, you know, again, as I alluded to, there's been a lot of detractors in the past and question of whether or not this is the best way to spend public money on science. Oversight of CIRM has been a problem. In 2012, the U.S. Institute of Medicine found that some scientists that were vetting the grant proposals had clear conflicts of interest. And so CIRM kind of shifted and shuffled its procedures for grant review. But I think that it kind of poisoned the well. The public felt mm -hmm. betrayed. Jim Lott, a member of the state board that oversees CIRM's finances, said that he is not satisfied with these changes. So this ongoing debate about how the effort should be focused from all this money, you know, billions of dollars that have been going to research. But researchers argue that the expectation for cures after a decade are really unrealistic. I mean, I guess what the voters expected to see is, oh, we're going to throw so much money at these problems that at least something's going to shake out and we're going to have a cure in a few years. But I think we need to accept realistic expectations. You know, most trials that lead to actual effective therapies go on for years, if not decades. So I think it's really a bit premature to be expecting returns, clinical returns from this research. And we really need to uh, extend these studies in order to start seeing them bear fruit. Or at least I think that's the consensus amongst a lot of California scientists. What do you think, Kiki? CIRM, these state-sponsored science, where do you come down on that? I think state-sponsored science is great. I mean, if there's money from the state to support scientific research and the people of the state want to keep it going, I think it can lead to great discoveries. And the expectation that 10 years we would have a whole bunch of cures, I think, is unreasonable. Unfortunately, there's a bunch of marketing and spin to get voters to vote in a particular direction. And, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to have stem cells for this and stem cells for that. And it's like, it takes a long time to go from stem cells in a dish and figuring out what about them could possibly make a good therapy and then making sure that they are safe 
you know, and that they are going to be effective before you get really into the clinical trials. You know, you have the dish research, then you have the mouse research, and then you have the monkey research. Maybe you get into people or you do, you know, I don't know. There's, there's so much. It's a long road. It's a long road. But I think that like people are saying, if they get rid of or they make sure that they've got a good system to get rid of those conflicts of interest between the individuals who are maybe doing the grant reviews and figuring out where the money wants to go and the actual implementation of science. I think that's an important part of it, piece of the puzzle. And then, you know, hopefully, I don't know, it would really be a shame to see this research effort stop. I mean, it would be kind of dumb because you're pulling the plug right in the middle of the machine, you know, and I think we, lest we forget that what the mission accomplished in terms of CIRM is that it really has attracted many of the brightest young minds in stem cell research to California. So the voters should be pleased and they should be ready to count their money. If they keep funding this, I think in the next few years, they'll see their return. So hang in there, California. Hang in there. Yeah. Press it. So yes, CIRM on its last leg. Oh, but you know, maybe there's hope. Here's another thing that is inevitable for all of us. Arthritis. Ugh. I'm feeling it now. I'm approaching 40. I feel like an old man. I can barely run around with my kids without suffering for at least a few days afterwards. But new work in stem cell reports uses the new gene editing technology CRISPR to rewire mouse stem cells to fight inflammation that's caused by arthritis and other chronic conditions. Now, of course, the acronym for these cells is SMART. They are stem cells modified for autonomous regenerative therapy. These SMART cells develop into cartilage cells and produce like a biologic anti-inflammatory that will replace the arthritic cartilage in your knee or whatever joint, let's say, and simultaneously provide the cushioning while also providing this kind of like whispering to the joint saying, calm down, don't be so inflamed. So these cells were developed to wash you in St. Louis and Shriners Hospitals for children in St. Louis in collaboration with investigators at Duke University and Cytex Therapeutics in the Research Triangle, North Carolina. They initially worked with skin cells taken from the tails of mice, made them into induced pluripotent stem cells, and then they used CRISPR to get rid of the gene that's involved with the inflammatory process called TNF-alpha. And this is really the bottom line. You know, there's a lot of drugs that are used to treat arthritis. There's like, for example, this Enbrel or Humira, Remicade. There's a run in the market for capitalizing on this huge market of old people who are in pain. Ugh. So what they all do is they pretty much attack this tumor necrosis factor, which usually causes inflammation. But the problem is when you give it to them as a drug, they act systemically and they can interfere with your immune system or have other off-target effects, making patients susceptible to side effects. So what the authors in this study did is they, they used like a, a smart bomb. They took these cells and they replaced the TNF-alpha gene with the gene that was a biological form that's an anti-inflammatory. So what they do is they deliver the cells and then the cells will go to the site of injury and normal cells will go there and be like, oh man, there's injury here. Let's spit out some TNF-alpha and like start the inflammatory process. But these cells, they think they're spitting out TNF-alpha, but they're actually spitting out an anti-TNF-alpha, a TNF-alpha inhibitor, a biologic form of this inhibitor that can protect 
the cartilage cells that they in create in there won't have them cleared by inflammation and create a kind of anti-inflammatory influence in the joint. So it's kind of like a double hit. Replace the cartilage with smart cartilage that's going to have a positive rejuvenative effect in the joint. So this is what we're talking about nowadays with cell therapy combined with gene therapy. We're making these hybrid therapies that are like double, double your uh, return on the investment, I guess. You have arthritis, Kiki? I'm sure I'm going to get it. I have an achy hip. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's coming at some point. It's inevitable. I mean, every once in a while, I'm like, I'm going to pop the Aleve or, you know, my, my naproxen or my ibuprofen or whatever it is. One a day. What is this, a commercial? The Come inflammation. <laughs> it's kids, you know, these kids, they kill you. You got to make an anti-kid drug, something like that, but. Yeah, I was just reading something in the latest science about vaccines and the commonest claim at the vaccine court is actually problems caused by the needle mm. penetrating the shoulder joint because the doctor or the nurse, they injected too high on the arm and that causes inflammation of the tendons and the bursa. And if we could reverse that inflammation with a nice, another nice little injection... You know, hey, the cells fix it. Maybe that would be one way to fix it very easily. Screw it up with one injection, fix it with another, mm. just inject you all day until we get it right. Stem cells for the win. <laughs> so, yes, serum's getting old. We're all getting old. And there's another thing that comes with age chlamydia. I don't know about you, but it's just a matter of time before we all get it. Is, is that true or did I just make that up? Well, it remains to be seen. Researchers at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute and their colleagues at University of British Columbia have developed a novel method for studying how the bacterium that causes chlamydia interacts with the human immune system. So that's good news for all of us, kind of like HPV vaccine. Now we can avoid chlamydia, STDs, goodbye. They use a combination of gene editing and stem cell technologies to identify and model the effect of two genes from our immune system IRF5 and interleukin-10 to identify them as key players in fighting chlamydia. So these are results reported in Nature Communications. And in identifying the essential function of these two factors, they've elucidated novel drug targets that can enable treatment of this sexually transmitted disease. So let's talk, get down to the nitty gritty quickly. What they did is they made macrophages from induced pluripotent stem cells, okay? These macrophages have a critical role in killing chlamydia to limit the infection. And the macrophages that these scientists made, the thing that was great about them is that they responded to the bacterium, the chlamydia, in a way that's really similar to the way it's done in the body, better than the macrophages you get from human blood. So that means this is like a more quote-unquote, human-like model than any that's been produced by previous methods. So this new model has a lot of advantages over previous ones, which were imperfect either because they were derived from mouse, which don't have the same immune system as humans, obviously, or they were derived from immortalized human macrophage cell lines, which are genetically different from normal macrophages. So here they have like bona fide IPS-derived macrophages. They genetically edit them with CRISPR-Cas9, and they look at the effects of doing this broad kind of sledgehammer to this cell line and try and isolate genes 
that resulted in changes in the macrophage's ability to fight infection. And that's how they came to these two genes. Quoting Robert Hancock, the lead author from the University of British Columbia, we can knock out specific genes in stem cells and look how the gene editing influences the resulting macrophages and their interaction with chlamydia. We're effectively sieving through the genome to find key players and can now easily see genes that weren't previously thought to be involved in fighting the infection. So, like I said, they discovered IRF5 and IL-10RA. And when these two genes were switched off or knocked out, the macrophages were really susceptible to chlamydia infection, showing how essential these genes are for fighting and may lead to new treatments for fighting chlamydia, which who knows, with this whole antibiotic resistance rage, mm -hmm. there may be some super chlamydias flying around out there. And, uh, you know, that wouldn't be so fun to get stuck with one of those. Yeah, they're, they're actually, chlamydia is increasing in its infection rate in the United States. And so it is becoming a little bit more of a problem than it was over the last couple of decades. And because it's increasing treatments, there is resistance that is growing because it is normally treated with antibiotics. So yes, there are superbug chlamydias that are floating around. And if we can find another way to treat this infectious disease, then that would be great. Yeah, we got to go down to the molecules, people. We got to oh. get down to the molecular level if we're going to solve these problems. Chlamydia, it's a bear. Yep. All right, last. This is kind of an optimistic one. You know, we're all old, but we could be young again, activating stem cells for quicker healing. Recent research led by assistant professor of stem cell biology and regenerative medicine at USC, Joseph T. Rogers, has found a way to increase the body's ability to heal after injury. This was in cell reports. So in previous work, Rogers has shown that adult stem cells, they activate. They enter this active state when the body sustains an injury. And these active cells have a greater ability to heal and repair damaged tissues. So the, the theory that Rogers had is that if you took blood from an injured person, it could produce an active state or alert in an uninjured person's stem cells. If you put the blood from one who was injured into a non-injured person, it could provide a surrogate kind of signaling apparatus to activate these cells. So using lab mice, he injected healthy mice with blood from injured mice. And of course, as you would expect, the healthy mice were observed to adopt this alert state amongst their stem cells. He showed that the chemical mechanism used to signal cells to enter this alert state was an enzyme called hepatocyte growth factor activator. It's always present in the bloodstream but doesn't activate until the body experiences an injury. And once the injury occurs, the enzyme kind of mobilizes adult stem cells to enter this active state. So once he figured out this factor existed, they decided to investigate what would happen if you had an injury while the adult stem cells were already kind of primed. So he injected and they, the group injected HGFA into healthy mice. And then a few days later, they injured the skin or muscle. Relative to control mice, these subjects were observed to heal faster, regrow their missing fur, and return to running on an exercise wheel sooner. So it supports the idea that the presence of this factor in the bloodstream can prime the body to quickly and efficiently respond to injuries. So as a therapeutic in the future, the idea for this is people who are really prone to injury or about to engage in activities that are likely to cause injury, like sports or surgery or going to war, maybe you could, you know, get a little shot of HGFA 
and get, you know, primed so you can heal quicker or patients, you know, who have diabetes or older people who have trouble healing. Maybe we yeah. can see if we can improve the healing apparatus in these people. So we're getting old, Keeks. We're getting <laughs> old, but there's a way I see light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, lots of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. It, it is interesting here. I wonder, you know, does HGFA decline in its concentrations or your body's ability to produce it as you age? Mm. So is that part of the aging decline, that this is not around to stimulate your stem cells to be ready to repair yeah, that's a good question. And I, I don't think it was addressed in this paper. Or is there something upstream of HGFA yeah. or maybe the substrate for this enzyme is is down or up? So it's a, you know, a real font for hypotheses. It looks like uh, Dr. Rogers and his group have plenty to look for in their quest for eternal youth. I'd also love to know how it ties in with some of those studies where they've injected young mice with old blood and Yes. old mice with blood from young mice. And, you know, how does that tie in? And are those factors that they're isolating in those studies related to this HGFA in some way? I'm sure it's a wonderful, complicated tale. It is. Every time I hear about this, I think two things. The whole Dracula idea is obvious, but the, the also these parabiosis mice, which has always been kind of a freak show for me, mm -hmm. where they like combine the circulation of two mice and they wow. have to live and join like Siamese twins it's yeah. it's a bizarre experiment but that that's where they're going these experiments are shedding light on the uh rejuvenation factor i guess that's right well there was some re pill reported this week that allows you to just you know not do anything but it mimics the effects of exercise in mice <laughs> so it's like just yeah we'll just take a pill don't have to exercise take another pill we're gonna stay young forever that's awesome. Gosh, that's yeah. totally cheating. I mean, it's not really fair. Right. But I'll take that pill. Hey, where do I where do I line up for that? Oh my goodness. All right. Well, that does it for our roundup. I hope you enjoyed that science pill. <laughs> We're gonna move forward into our interview now. So Dalen and I, we both talked a couple of weeks ago about this Allen Cell Explorer. We re I reported on that in the roundup a couple of weeks back. And I'm so excited to have our guests on the show here today because they are people who worked on developing the Cell Explorer. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to be welcoming Drs. Rick Horowitz and Graham Johnson to the show. Rick spent the last 15 years in the Department of Cell Biology as Harrison Distinguished Professor and University Professor at the University of Virginia School of Medicine where his lab investigated the mechanisms of cell migration and dendritic spine morphogenesis. He also served for 10 years as the director of the Cell Migration Consortium, an NIH-funded multi-institutional, multidisciplinary collaboration for studying cell migration in its many biological and pathological contexts. He's now the executive director of the Allen Institute for Cell Science in Seattle, Washington. And Graham is a computational biologist and certified medical illustrator. He graduated from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Department of Art as Applied to Medicine in 1997 and received his PhD from the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, working in Art Olson's Molecular Graphics Lab. He then moved to the California Institute for Quantitative Biosciences at UCSF, where he focused on generating, simulating, and visualizing molecular models of cells with his lab's Mesoscope project and at the Allen Institute for Cell Science, 
Graham and his team compile experiment and imaging data into multi-scale spatiotemporal and interactive models of the cell to create the Animated Cell Explorer. Stem Cell Technologies is very proud to be providing the Allen Institute for Cell Science with the specialized cells culture and differentiation medium required to maintain and validate their commercially available iPS cell lines. The StemDiff Trilineage Differentiation Kit provides a simple culture assay to functionally validate the ability of new or established human ES and iPS cell lines to differentiate to the three germ layers, mesoderm, endoderm, and ectoderm. To learn more about Stem Cell's Trilineage Differentiation Kit, visit www.stemcell.com slash trilineage. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Horowitz and Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Can we start by telling the audience in a little bit more detail about the work and focus that your lab is engaged in at the Allen Institute? So I think the place to start is we're not a lab. We're actually an institute of a large number of people focused on a single goal. And our goal is to understand cells and model them. So the goal is to create mathematical models of cells in normal and pathological states. And it's also to understand disease from a mechanistic point of view. Maybe it's a good time for me to jump in there. So I'm familiar with the Allen Brain Institute, which I think is probably came before or after the Cell Institute. It's a separate entity, am I wrong? Yes, Brain Institute is uh, about 14 years old. And the okay. cell is about three years old. So okay. uh, right. the Brain Institute's goal was to create an atlas of the brain, mainly based on gene expression, at least at the start. And the cell atlas, or the cell institute, has an atlas in goal, in a sense, but it's based on live cell imaging. I get it. So I think, maybe I don't get it, I should say, completely. And I just want you to elaborate on that, because I think it's really easier, I guess, for people to grasp the concept of the brain atlas. Oh, there's this mystery of the brain, and we're trying to kind of three-dimensionalize that so we can understand the circuits and pathology and all that stuff. But with the Cell Institute, maybe it's not so easy for people to grasp the idea of modeling a cell. What exactly are we talking about when we say modeling a cell? We're trying to get a deep understanding of how cells work, and a big part of that, our first step towards that is to understand how cells are structured, what their architecture is. And we're learning that there's so much variation within cells, even of similar types, even growing on the same dish and within their range of cell cycle states, that we need methods to statistically describe all the positional relationships and other quantification measurements of where all the components in the cells are so that we can understand how much of everything there is, where it is, and what their relationships are to one another as a baby step towards understanding how cells function. So to move it up a level, um, gene expression tells you what the players are, but it doesn't tell you how they work. And on the other side of that is a molecular view, which is overwhelmingly complex. So we have these two views that have been very successful. One is genomics and what genes are expressed Trying to predict what cells do or understand what cells do from expressed genes is a big step. And trying to understand what cells do as a whole from all the components would be trying to understand an automobile or let's say a, a computer from a quantum mechanics. 
it's going to be hard. So we're trying to take a systems view and look at the whole cell and start out by saying how many of everything is there and where are they and what are the relationships using live cell dynamic imaging. And from that, we'll get a map of the cell that will have predictive value in the sense that where things are organized, everything a cell does is really a result of changes in structure on the nanoscale or on the mesoscale. It will also give us mechanistic information as we start to see what relationships there are and we can derive hypotheses from them. So it's very different than the brain atlas, but I would say it's the next step in the evolution of this atlasing work. I think with the brain, you know, there's this kind of, uh, you expect particular nuclei, there are particular areas of the brain that the visual cortex kind of goes in the back of the brain, you've got the parietal lobe, you've got these areas of the brain that are very predictable from brain to brain to brain. As you go through and image cells, are you finding how much predictability is there in what things are where in a cell? There's certainly variation and in gross scale anatomy and in structures of the brain, but it is so much more consistent than the variation that we're dealing with. But we do already see patterns in the data where our first set of cells, the human-induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, grow in these epithelial sheets. And we see distributions of certain cell structures and organelles, you know, towards the top half of the cell, towards the bottom half, or located closer to the cell membrane versus the nucleus, et cetera. What's interesting is that we see enormous cell-to-cell -cell variation, what you're asking about. We don't know what the origin of all of it is. Some of it is cell cycle state. Some of it may be stages of differentiation that we don't know. Some of it's the environment of the cell. We know that the cells at the edges are different than the cells in the middle. So there's a lot of variation. Some we think we might understand, but I think there's a lot of biology that we don't know yet that's coming out of the structural variation, as well as stochasticity. So one surprise is we looked at a nuclear structure, Lamin B1, and at least in my reading of the books, I'm not an expert in the field, the nucleus on division is supposed to break down, but the Lamin B1 structure just divides as if it were its own cell. It stays intact. So it doesn't just fall apart as we had thought in the books. And uh, similarly, the ER, that's a perinuclear structure that seems to be in tightly coordinated with what this nucleus does. So we're seeing really unusual things and unusual structures. So our picture of the, of the cell that we had going in is not necessarily what we're seeing. And I think we're trying to straighten that out as well as study all the variation. So you mentioned uh, induced pluripotent stem cells were some of the cell types you characterize. Is there any particular cell type, like from a particular organ, brain maybe, Paul Island seems to have an interest in that, that you're focusing on because the cell atlas, either less is known or there's more emphasis on those cells with respect to disease or any other interest? Is there any cell type you're focused on? We're starting with the undifferentiated stem cell. That's not studied particularly well. And what we found, as Graham pointed out, it's an epithelial sheet. So it's actually interesting in its own right. Our first differentiated cell is going to be the uh, cardiomyocyte because it's interesting. It has a fantastically well-organized structure. And more importantly, it differentiates fairly fast and relatively completely compared to some of the others that have been described. So the cardiomyocytes first. 
And one of the goals is not only to track variation within the beginning and the ending state, but also to track the changes as the cells differentiate. Yeah, it seems really tough because and I'm picturing like snowflakes, you know, everyone loves to say, oh, no snowflakes are the same. And I'm picturing like a cell, whether or not that's the case in vitro or in vivo or whatever, that cells are so dynamic that almost none are the same. Even if they are criteria by which you can say this cell is just like that one, it must be, where do you begin? How do you start to define whatever overarching phenotype denotes a cell as identical to another? Well, I think um, you start out by imaging thousands of cells rather than three. So what we're doing is we're creating an enormous statistical database where we'll take, say, the undifferentiated stem cell label, say, the, the mitochondrion or who knows what, and instead of looking at it four times, like we would do in our labs or my old lab or 10 times, we'll look at it a thousand times. And uh, suddenly you start to see, you can start to statistically tease out what is sort of normal and what is abnormal and what these abnormal phenotypes might correspond to. One of the approaches is using, our modeling team is using computer vision in the form of deep learning neural networks to have the computers look at thousands of cells to tease out patterns in the data. And it's recognizing relationships that, that some structures are predictive of other structures, whereas some structures may have completely random distributions relative to others. While a stochastic system like a cell, we could never predict 100% what a third structure is based on two structures what we can say is within a certain degree of certainty based on having seen all of these other cells in the past, here is a model with a certain degree of confidence versus picking an extremely low degree of confidence. And we can begin to predict localization tendencies in the data. And the more data we get, the more pairs of structures that we get relative to one another, the higher resolution that that predictive model can become over time. So in the end, we're, we're actually seeing that there is sort of a canonical structure that has some variation that is understandable. But obviously, there's going to be parts of the cell, what you're talking about, which might be extremely dynamic, and that would just be sort of noise now. Think of it more like solving a protein structure. You could do 10 angstrom resolution structure and see the backbone, and you know what the protein looks like. You could get a, a two angstrom, and there's probably chains that are dynamic that you'll never get right. So we're going to see all of this, but there appears to be a fundamental structure, at least of this cell, and obviously of the cardiomyocyte, and obviously of a dividing cell. One more point of clarity is, so far we have 11 proteins with endogenous GFP tags in them, and those were specific large structures such as organelles in the cell. And that's kind of the scale and the resolution that we're observing the cells and modeling the cells with the 3D microscopy that we're doing on them. You're starting kind of at that, I mean, it's still the cell microscopic, but you're dealing at this macroscopic <laughs> organelle level as opposed to going much structurally smaller than that. What kinds of challenges were you up against technically trying to get this project off the ground and get it to the point where you've got a, a working model? We're putting together what we call a bunch of cutting edge technologies, none of which we invented ourselves, but to bring them up to a scale and conjoin them the way we're doing has been enormously challenging. So things that sound easy 
on a small scale where you're doing one in five years, it's okay. When you're trying to do a lot of it, it gets hard. So we're doing gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9, but to gene edit big chunks like these, like the GFPs, that's really hard to do. So we had to work out our own methods there. We're doing uh, the differentiation and the growth of these cells. They actually keep them in a stem state. People are doing this, but it's hard to do that. The machine learning is very new. Microscopy to get quantitative images and segment the cells and, and get structures that are GFP tagged and aren't screwed up has been a real challenge. And we've done that by speaking to our colleagues and saying, if you wanted to see where the mitochondria is, what protein would you choose? And have you made a GFP against it and did it work well? So we did this for all of our structures. So it's brought our risk down, but nevertheless, still hard. Some of the genes are expressed late. How do we select for genes that don't show up early? How do we visualize it? So the most striking thing is these are epithelial cells. We have to look at them in 3D. Few people have looked at cells in detail in 3D, let alone served up 7,000 cells for the community to look at themselves. So the visualization has been a challenge. So the whole thing is a challenge and getting people to work together is a challenge. Well, their technical challenges are one that we in the community are really gonna try to tackle over the next few years, but that segmentation of the data. So the, the data at this resolution, especially in the Z dimension, is relatively sparse. And so segmentation is difficult. Which components belong to which cells? There are challenges of, in the same regard, of separating those cells from one another, uh, trying to use techniques of dyeing or versus doing dual gene edits in the same cell. And, and with a goal of keeping the cells as happy and healthy and as native as possible, and then the delivery to the world of these large amounts of data, both in an easily digestible online format and a meaningful format online, as well as just being able to allow people to download huge chunks of data in an affordable manner is another challenge. Yeah, so I mean, all these challenges, and really I think that reflects how you've integrated so many fields. This is you know, the definition of interdisciplinary, and I'm sure that brings with it its, its own challenges. And you can see why you need an institute, for God's sakes, to do all this stuff. Just with respect to the machine learning and the integration or understanding of these massive amounts of data, that's one of these things that seems to be evolving at such a fast pace. Have you noted that, are you gleaning more information from the data set, from the same data set? Or can you capture more information from an older data set by integrating into these new like AI type things that are emerging? Is that one of the elements of the project that's really fast moving? So we actually have just put out one model so far. So our big goal is that we want a true, a more accurate view of what a cell looks like, which we don't know. But we can only look at these things, one or two structures at a time because of the limits of the biology and the microscopy. So we have to have a way of, of looking at, say, where the mitochondrion is in a cell, where the nucleus is, where the this is, where the, that is, and somehow integrate that. That's what we're doing with the deep learning computational model now. So we're not looking at old versus new. We're looking at this whole data set. So it's huge and is growing by hundreds a week. And that is giving us the information we need to develop this model of what a cell looks like. Now, the website now is a two-dimensional version of it and the 3D one, which is a 
computational nightmare. It's hard to do, but we have the infrastructure <laughs> for it now. We should have something pretty significant this fall, but the computations are big. One of our first goals, our first major projects with this, as Rick mentioned, we have 11 structures labeled one at a time, but they also currently have uh, DNA and cell membrane dyes on them. And those are being used as landmark structures for the computer vision technology to be able to have a reference of relative to this nucleus and this cell membrane, what is the pattern of this structure? That will, it allows this algorithm to then stitch all 11 structures together as a first generation predictive model of a whole cell with all these components relative to one another, which becomes a hypothesis for how those structures are organized one another. And then once we have the time to go back and say, let's do the dual edits of say microtubules, cytoskeletal element compared to mitochondria, and that will either confirm that data or give us higher resolution to improve the model with this, using the system. The microtubule stuff, I'm sure, is going to be really interesting. There seems to be a lot of research suggesting that there are disease states based on issues with the tubulin or with uh, the filaments within the cells and how, as being the protein moving tracks within the cell to get things from place to place. So being able to place those things side by side is going to be very interesting to see. Excuse me, what we would like to do, though, is if there's a mutant, say, in the mitochondria or the microtubules, we'd like to look at what the effect of that is on every other structure in the cell. So we're taking a very holistic view. And not only that, we'd like to see maybe how that abnormal cell would affect the cells next to it. So we're taking a very systems-wide view in that perspective. And so, Graham, I'm really interested in your background as a medical illustrator as well and taking this the computational aspects of what you're putting together with this project and then the artistic side of things. Are there any insights that you personally have come out of this project with? Sure. I've, for the last 20 years, I've been trying to understand and depict what whole cells look like, for example, spread throughout 600 drawings of a textbook or in animations by just compositing dozens to hundreds of publications and papers and different types of data from old school electron microscopy of what cells looked like in the heyday of electron microscopy in the 70s to more modern dynamic live cell imaging all the way down to protein structure and trying to find ways to stitch all of this together into more comprehensive models. What's really been missing is large scale dynamic data sets of healthy, happy cells like we're creating here. So it's a really exciting time to build this large framework to stitch all this together. So let's elaborate on that, or maybe you guys can use your imagination or give us a little glimpse of the future. Let's say with the cardiomyocyte atlas, for example, how do you envision either yourself or other researchers with access to the data capitalizing on this as a resource. Could you like kind of talk us through the potential applications and how we can extend this into some kind of clinical insight or you know basic biological insight that has clinical implications? Well, one thing we hope to do is to create sort of a cell clinic in the sense that we're gonna look at the effects of drugs that are known, of drugs and agonists whose functions are known, some key mutants, and other kinds of changes in environment to see how the cell responds as a whole, so that we would be able to look at a cell 
that's in a pathological state or hasn't altered something or other and say what the likely origin of it is or what pathway may have created the alterations. That's kind of thing one. Thing two is if you have a new protein and you're not sure what that protein does or where it is, if you were to tag the protein and use the referencing structures that we have and the model that we're developing, you'll be able to see where that protein is and what structure it is likely involved in. So that'd be two obvious things right out of the gate. I think a lot of the potential of this computer vision and deep learning technology is that these morphology changes that occur with the different cell environments, the different stresses, the different mutations can become much more automated through this process. So instead of requiring an expert with tens of years of knowledge and looking at cells to be able to deduce whether that cell is happy, what's going to happen to that cell in a few days, we're building this statistical database and this image recognition and pattern recognition and the morphologies that occur throughout all the different organelles that we've experienced and labels to be able to, to help automate that a lot more. And eventually, I mean, you're starting with stem cells and I would hope, I don't know how far the atlas will go, but I mean, to get an entire developmental atlas, you can see how organelles change with time and with differentiation. Exactly, and the low-hanging fruit for us right now is the cell cycle because it comes for free. We see cells in every state and there are ways to judge those states that are pretty easy. So we're doing that now. So we already have a pretty good picture of a mitotic cell soon and the pathway. And then of course, as a scientist, you're gonna wanna ask, well, how does it reorganize itself? Which are questions we've never asked actually. And the other side of it is, during the differentiation into the cardiomyocyte, we definitely want to follow that dynamically. And I think that no one has really done that on this scale with multiple structures. I'll add to what you said, which is one of the things I deeply appreciate about this entire project, just for my career goals of understanding how cells work and being able to visualize them is we're beyond the potential clinical applications, which are many, we're getting this fantastic opportunity to do some really foundational basic science to once and for all truly understand how cells work, how they're structured in just a meticulous manner that enables much more, I think, mechanical potentially understanding, the ability to hang multiple scales of data and information to generate hypotheses, that will eventually, with the modeling team's effort, be able to bridge both the systems level structural work that we're doing now all the way down to mechanistic understandings of how the molecular building blocks of life lead to those complex patterns that we're seeing in the data at the scale we're working at now. And with the single cell genomic information, which we're just starting to generate now, we plan to actually bridge genomics to organization to what the cell does on the one hand, and there's an enormous amount of molecular biology that we have to scale up. We're trying to not do everything, but we're trying to bridge what others have done into a physical platform that we are generating. I was just going to say from the textbook standpoint, from students who have been just showing the pictures of mitotic cells going through cell division and all, you know, you just imagine this circle with a nucleus inside of it, that maybe the spindle there's not much real imaging of, that you can give to people to visualize and understand what's happening. And so that's going to help people's comprehension and understanding so much. One thing I'm absolutely certain of is that the textbook view of the cell is going to change soon. 
because whatever's there, as Graham pointed out, is based on sort of a person's experiential composite of some EM pictures of sections of cells and one structure here and one there. It just isn't accurate. It's not a data-driven one. It's not quantitative. And right out of the gate, in a sense, we're seeing the first view of what the cell looks like on the inside. We're doing it structure by structure, and it's going to be really, really interesting. I think another goal, getting back to your question about uh, my illustration career, is I've always been interested in trying to get broader audiences and potential biologists, early college career, late high school, more interested in cell biology. And it's difficult because it, it's such a different world. There's such a different vocabulary, both visual and semantic. And I think what this, one of the things that's missing is just the wonderment and beauty of the real data, the detailed real data, all of the, the amazing structure, the amazing dynamics of tissues, of cells, of organelles, of molecular structures, and being able to build this system that is both accurate and also has tools for analysis and data reduction to enable humans to understand all this complexity is the real challenge, but a tremendous opportunity moving forward. Yeah, I think I just want to reiterate again, it's clearly it takes an institute to put all this work together. And I think kudos we owe some kudos to, to Paul Allen. We talked a bit earlier on the show in the Roundup segment house, the funding for CIRM is rounding up. And I think your work really emphasizes and underscores the role for philanthropic contributions in science. So you can ask these long game questions. I mean, you guys are setting up, you have to scramble on a period, two, four year periodicity of grant renewal. So kudos to you, kudos to Paul Allen. You guys are doing crushing it over there at the Institute. Nice work. Well, thank you very much. It isn't easy. We're all working at the edge of our comfort zone, but as I like to tell everyone, that's where great science is. It's also where life is. It's the result of a very ever-growing, large and talented team approaching 50 people soon. And yeah, we couldn't agree more that this opportunity of the funding from Paul Allen Family Foundation and Allen Institute and the structure that we're learning from our big brother at the brain has been just absolutely paramount to being able to pull this off in such a short time. Great work, guys. Yeah, great work. Thank you so much for joining us today. We absolutely appreciate your time. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks for having us. All right. That was nice. That was a really nice interview. We went deep into machine learning. You know, people give the cell short shrift, considering that trillions of these things somehow come together to form this unit that then makes up these organs. People are much more impressed with the meta than with the micro, than this little cell. The cell is the engine, and I think there's not much appreciation of that. So it's nice to talk to people who are going blindingly into depth on the cell. I appreciate these guys coming on. The predictive nature of this is so interesting. I mean, I've just grown up with this idea of, you know, the cell as its internal components being just a soup of stuff, right? But this is going to tell us where mitochondria show up most often in cell structure. Where are the ribosomes? Where is, you know, the Golgi apparatus? Where do these things sit? Do they always sit in the same place? Do they sit in different places during different phases of differentiation, of development, of disease? You know, so being able to really 
dig into our inner world of cells, I think is going to be just so helpful to future research. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm ready to, uh, to come out of the cell atlas, though. I've been looking at it a little bit, I'm going to say. I was looking at it a little bit while we we're talking, yeah. and I'm, I'm like totally, I'm not going to say what I would do, what I would like to do while looking at the cell atlas, but it might be fun to, you know, do something and just sit there all day you know, with the, with all these pretty colors and whatnot. It's fun. It's fun. It's a really fun time, but enough about that. Let's get angry. It is time. Yeah. We're going to close the show with our good old SCP rant. It's our chance to complain about something that bothers us and might most likely. Yes. No bothers you. Dalen, are you feeling old? Ugh, this show has really put me in the mood. I feel useless, (laughs) withered, old, but you know, I have to say, sometimes old is better than new. I'm getting like my interface for my microscope reconfigured there, and they gave me this behemoth of a mouse. You know, they they pretty much, they nude up my whole computer, and now I don't even know where to start. I feel like I have to take a class to understand how to work the mouse, and I get it. If you're like a power gamer, you could sit there. The thing will probably like pour you a Coke. But I don't need all that functionality. I just need to point and click. So I'm wondering why the heck do all new things have to be so hard? Why can't they maintain the central elements? You know, I'm tired of things getting all nude up. I'm getting old, Kiki. (laughs) Are you the old dog who's having trouble learning new tricks? Is that what's going on? I'm afraid so. It's not that I'm having trouble. I just don't care to do it. Ah, Maybe I can't. I'll admit there's there's a possibility that I'm not that good at learning things. It's fair. But I also don't care to learn new things. I know that for sure. I think that's more more like it. There, For me, it's like, oh, do I really want to spend my time learning this brand new thing that's kind of remaking the wheel just with some new fancy flags and hoo-hahs? What's it worth? Yeah. Sometimes I'm just fine with what I already know. Maybe I can add to that knowledge a bit, but do I have to learn something completely new? No, you don't, Kiki. No one's going to make you do it. If they say do it, you say, I can't. No, I won't learn. (laughs) I want to keep learning though. Remember the beginning of the show, always trying to better myself, but you know, it it doesn't necessarily mean having to relearn something that I already knew in a particular way. And I mean, unless it is a really, really new thing that I need to know, but if it's not a really, really new thing and it's just taking a computer and putting a new mouse on it and some new commands, can you just do that with the old mouse? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not self-improvement. This mouse is not going to make me better. Okay. (laughs) I can say that for sure. No, those ergonomic designs, they'll keep you from getting the carpal tunnel. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. I'll take carpal tunnel over this stupid mouse. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather have a pain in my wrist than a pain in my head. (laughs) That's for sure. Oh, well, I'm angry, but I'm I'm not that angry about it. I'm annoyed. I think you're just annoyed at getting old and the world changing around you. Dang sure, Keith. (laughs) Another episode, another two weeks gone from my life. All right, everybody. Do you feel like you're getting old and the world is changing around you? Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. 
All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 91 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure, everyone out there, to tune in for our next episode. Guys, Kiki is going to do the next episode in her old lady voice. So tune in for that one. <laughs> the whole time be here with my cane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh. <laughs>